Guys, grab your Bibles, and uh, if you'll open them in 1 Kings 17, that's where you'll need to turn. Um, but before I get there, um, I wanted to say a couple of things. Um, in light of uh, the events of the past week, it seems like something ought to be said. Guys, I don't know whether you were here last week, but uh, my words on the, in recognition of July the 4th were, were at least appropriate, they were probably just vastly understated. Um, you remember the quote that I, I used from Roger Cohen, who is a, an editor or, or a columnist at the New York Times, which isn't exactly what you'd call an evangelical conservative newspaper, but Roger Cohen said that we are living in a time of unraveling. Um, I, I used the word lawlessness. We were moving towards lawlessness. But um, maybe the word is anarchy. Gang, uh, do you know what the word anarchy means? It's a, it's a combination of two Greek words. Um, one, arche, which, is, um, which means king. Uh, the uh, little negative particle on the front means no king. You remember, uh, if you've ever studied the book of Judges, you remember that one of the refrains in the book of Judges is, and there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what we're seeing. A country that is determined to rid itself from any vestige of God and his word, the one who is the lawgiver, is, uh, it is the attempt of our country to run him out of town. And thus you see, uh, we are moving towards anarchy. You know, guys, um, one of the things that's so frustrating to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one, is that um, the, the solutions that are being offered are absolutely worthless. I, I, they're not absolutely. I remember... Years ago, when there was violence in the schools, they recommended um, metal detectors. And, and, you know, metal detectors are fine, and they're not worthless, but they do not address the issue. The issue, ladies and gentlemen, is the heart. And nobody, not the Democrats, not the Republicans, nobody's addressing the heart. We're talking about gun control, and perhaps we should. I, I don't know. That's for you to decide. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the, the metal detectors did not stop violence in the schools, and gun control will not stop what we see erupting in our country. The issue is the heart. Islam doesn't have um, a message that addresses the heart. Neither does Hinduism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism. They only address the outsides, ladies and gentlemen, and that's not going to do. That's not going to make it. The only ones with, an, with a remedy are the ones who are being spurned. The Christian church and her message, and, and again, a part of the frustration is that the Christian church is twiddling her thumbs. I have a, I have a friend who, um, who is a, uh, he, he directs the music portion of a worship service in another church in the city. It's a major denomination, uh, which you would recognize in an instant, that is the denomination you would. And in his um, worship music that he put together for a particular Sunday, he included a hymn that we sing around here all the time. Uh, it's called In Christ Alone, In Christ Alone is, you know, you, you, we, we sing that song around here, In Christ Alone. He included it on a Sunday morning and was rebuked by the senior pastor 
for uh, using that hymn, saying it was too exclusivistic, and he did not want it ever used again in that, in that church. So, so the problem is Washington? No, ladies and gentlemen. It's far more fundamental than that. The church. The church is um, fiddling while Rome is falling. I, I don't want to be a part of that, ladies and gentlemen. I, I hope you don't want to be a part of that. Uh, we have one message. It's a message that is woven to this book on every page, and that is that Jesus saves. Guys, um, pray. Pray that, um, that God has not had enough and that he will listen to our cries and our pleas for mercy. Um, there comes a point, ladies and gentlemen, when the door of grace slams shut. Now, if you don't believe that, I, I challenge you to read Proverbs chapter 1 this afternoon. There comes a time when the, um, when the God of heaven says you love your sin, you want your sin, and he says, here, have a gut full. And that's what we're seeing around this country, ladies and gentlemen. So um, we are not in business to make you more comfortable. We are in business to teach you what God has said and to call you to obedience to it. Oh, that the Christian church might begin to shout uh, before it's too late. Now, um, those are my thoughts. Um, I'm sure you've got those and more and better. But, um, gang, if this does not, I mean, after 9-11, you know, the churches were filled, lasted about three weeks. Is that, is that what's going to happen with us? Where we see this, this unraveling and, and then get back to our money-making? I hope not. Um, pray that God's ears are still open to the cries of mercy from his people, for mercy from his people. Enough. Um, guys, you may recall, I'm sure, I don't really expect you to, but a month ago I said to you I was going to use a, a half of a sentence out of Psalm 23. Uh, the 23rd Psalm, very famous, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And people seem to know that one. There's one line in it that I, I said, suggested to you a month ago that would be our theme for our communion Sundays, and it's this line, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, or in King James language, thou hast prepared a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Maybe, you, maybe that sounds more familiar. But um, last uh, month, we looked at the life of Elijah and um, uh, tried to give you an illustration of that principle in Psalm 23. This morning, we take another uh, uh, vignette out of the life of Elijah. It's found in First. Kings 17. Let me read you that, again, all by way of illustration of the principle found in Psalm 23, verse 5, uh, that thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Listen to this story, beginning at verse 8 of 1 Kings eight, uh, 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I, will, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. 
And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son and we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and for your, and, and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of the Lord, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, on numerous occasions in the past, I have mentioned um, the power of stories. We all love stories. Uh, we're raised on stories. We love to be engaged. That, uh, stories kind of grab us when, <coughs> when no lecture or no sermon ever would. Um, stories are things that turn in on us. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> they turn in on us and teach us lessons about ourselves and about our, the, the settings in which we find ourselves. Um, the Bible is full of stories, Old Testament, New Testament. But uh, I, I wanted to show you a story that perhaps is not as widely known as other stories that you may have read in, in the Scriptures. It, of course, comes out of the life of Elijah, um, Elijah the prophet. You know, there were there are two big uh, prophets in the Old Testament. Well, more than two, but Elijah and Elisha. We get those two confused. But Elijah um, is the, the story that's taking place that, uh, now that we're going to take a look at. Um, but guys, you've you got to know this about the Old Testament. When, a, when, a, when God raises up a prophet and he sends him out to, to speak, when you hear him speaking, what you are hearing is the word of God. That's why I tried to emphasize that last clause according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. When a prophet spoke, it was the same thing as this book. It was, it was the word of God coming out of the mouth of a prophet that God had raised up. Now, last month, I introduced, well, I didn't, I'm sure you knew about it before, but we looked at the, 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 the event, which is the crowning moment of Elijah's prophetic ministry. It was his victory over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that? That's in 1 Kings 18, um, where they meet up there and they have this contest and, and uh, the prophets of Baal get crazy and run around the, the altar and cut themselves and all that business. And then, and then God shows up and consumes the altar. Remember that? That's 1 Kings 18. And then the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, are killed there as a result of that contest that they lost. Um, right after that, uh, Elijah, hearing the threats of the queen uh, Jezebel, um, runs. And we looked at him last week in 1 Kings 18, 19, uh, last month, and he was... Um, 
resting under a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is, but he found one. He's resting under a broom tree, uh, depressed and suicidal. He sleeps and God feeds him there. And that was the illustration that I used last month about God setting a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Um, But all of that, oh, 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 and last month I also tried to tell you of the, the political chaos that preceded all of these events. Remember, uh, it's 1 Kings 16. They had, um, had four kings in two years. They had two kings in seven days. But the fourth of those four kings was Ahab. He was married, of course, to Jezebel, and he is ruling in the northern kingdom of Israel. All right? Now, but all of this that we looked at last week or last month about um, Mount Carmel happens before the event that we read this morning. Let me give you a quick timeline. Um, you got the political chaos, four kings in two years. Uh, Elijah appears, chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Elijah the prophet of God, the Tishbite, wherever Tishbe is. Um, he, he, that's where his hometown is. And Elijah comes forth and says, uh, and he proclaims a God-ordained drought. A drought. You know, guys, we just went to Israel back in April, and I'm telling you, we heard about the need for water 150 times. When there's no water, things are bad, and really bad in this culture uh, where everything depended on rain. Well, God, uh, God, through Elijah, proclaims a drought. At that point, God tells Elijah, go hide by a brook by the name of Cherith, C-H-E-R-I-T-H. And I'm going to feed you there. And that's what he does. He goes to that brook. Um, he drinks from the brook and ravens bringing things to eat. Ravens, which, by the way, are an unclean bird. But that's where he stays. And then that brook dries up. This is in 1 Kings 1 through 7. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 7. Uh, that brook dries up as a result of the drought and God moves him. Moves him to Zarephath, which is the story that we read. God moves him to Zarephath, um, which was a part of Sidon, a city in a state, something like that. Um, There, he is told that a widow, a Gentile widow, is going to provide for him. He comes to the city, he sees a widow gathering some sticks, and he says to her, "Uh, could could you give me a, a glass of water, please? And so she goes to get that, and he says, now, would you bring me a little meal, you know, bake me up something and uh, bring it on over? And she says, wait a minute, we got nothing. I got a handful of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm about to go bake something for me and my, for me and my son so that we can die. Um, and the uh, prophet of God says, before you do that, You go feed me. And against every parental instinct, she goes and obeys what she had heard out of the mouth of the prophet of God. (coughs) Pardon me. You know what that took? That is, do, do do you see her situation? Now, guys, she's a Gentile. 
She's not in Israel. She's not a Jewess. She's a Gentile. And this guy shows up and she says, the Lord your God, that is to Elijah. And uh, now she's being told, here's something that I want you to do. And at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, she faces a crisis of faith. Who do I believe? Is this God's word to me? And if it is God's word to me, then there's only one legitimate response. Dad gummit, go obey it. Guys, it's the same choice that you and I face. Tell me, is this God's word or is it not? There's a lot of other voices out there that's saying this is a bunch of ridiculous religious literature. Is it God's word or not? Because if it is, then there's some commands in it. And the little widow in Zarephath has to do the same thing that we have to do. Exercise faith that what we have heard came from God. Just real quickly, just the story is full of irony, several of them. First of all, you know, uh, Elijah is in the city of Sidon in Zarephath, or Zarephath in Sidon. Guess who else is from Sidon, who is a Sidonian? Guess who? Jezebel, the queen that wants to kill him. She's, uh, she's from Sidon. And another irony is this. Guess what Baal was known for? What was Baal's long suit? Rain. He was supposed to be the god of rain. And there's no rain. So you see, when you got no rain, you got no Baal. And so the irony is that there is a poor, peasant, Gentile widow that provides for God's prophet and feeds him and sustains his life. But then there is a wealthy queen in Israel that wants to kill him. And in a world, ladies and gentlemen, where God's prophet is hunted and hated, God sends him elsewhere. And I say to you, my fellow American, you and I are tasting of that same judgment. In a world where God's word is hunted and hated, God sends it elsewhere. And by the way, you do know of that famous statement in Amos chapter 8, do you not? Oh, everybody knows Amos 8. I think it's verse 3, but I'm not sure. Amos 8, where, where Amos says, days are coming. <laughs> there's going to come a day when there's going to be a famine in the land. But it's not going to be a famine of bread and water. Oh, no, no, it's not going to be a famine like that. It's going to be a famine of God's word. 
And so when a, when a culture decides that this has got to go, then God just takes it and sends it elsewhere. He sends it to China or Africa or South America because that culture has decided to get rid of this. As it's not so much the Bible I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Word of God as it comes out of the mouth of the prophet here and this book here. Oh, by the way, this story about this widow is mentioned by, guess who? Jesus. Luke chapter 4. He's in a synagogue in Capernaum, right on the north side of uh, the north tip of uh, the Sea of Galilee. He's in a synagogue up there in Capernaum, and he says to his Jewish audience, he says, you know, there was a lot of widows in Israel. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of widows in Israel. But when God got ready to send his voice, his word to one of them, he went to a Gentile in Zarephath. And the listeners to Jesus, all Jewish at that moment, were furious that they would mention a Gentile widow. And they decided, we got to kill this guy. So here's the lesson, or two of the lessons, three of the lessons. First of all, who is it that believes? It's not the wealthy, sophisticated insider. It's the peasant Gentile widow outsider who embraces the message of grace. And let me say this again. Another lesson. When when a nation when a nation decides that they don't want to listen to this anymore. God sends it elsewhere, which is what I think we're experiencing currently. But then finally, everybody in this story that exercises faith gets fed. (laughs) The rest starve. Guys, if you want this food, the food that doesn't fill the belly but addresses the need of the soul. If you want this food, there's only one way to properly take it. By faith. When I come to the place where I recognize that what's being symbolized here in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ is something that I need more than I do my next breath. You may not have gotten to that point yet. You may still have questions, and we would love to try. We would love to have the privilege of trying to explain those. But first, the family needs to be fed. And if you are a part of that family by faith in Jesus Christ, come. Come eat alongside your brothers and sisters. Come eat alongside the family and realize all over again that he has set a table for us in the presence of our enemies.
Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that every need that we have ever had has been met for us by the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you will not leave us forsaken, that you will sustain us in the midst of what kind of spiritual drought is going on. But Lord, would you now meet us and refresh us by reminding us of that which is the event that has made reconciliation with God possible. Meet us here, Father, for Jesus' sake. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen.